Father, would you send your spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, Friends, this semester, I want to introduce you to Jesus. Um, In one sense, um, we're always talking about Jesus on Tuesday nights. Uh, Last semester, we walked through the overarching story of the whole Bible, and each week, and the whole story, is about Jesus, and that's good news because the fullness of God is in him and in the fullness of humanity, too. And if the whole thing is about Jesus, then it welcomes each and every one of us into the center of the story of God and the entire cosmos. And so, in a sense, we talked about Jesus all last semester. That's what we've been doing for 25 years on this campus. And on top of that, I know most of you have grown up in the Bible Belt. Most of you. I'm from Seattle. Go Seahawks. Uh, go see socks. <gasps> go see socks. Uh, anyway, on top of that, I know most of you have grown up here or regionally. When I first moved to the South, I remember asking people, where are you from? Are you from around here? And they're like, no, I'm not from around here. Where are you from? I'm from Knoxville. And I was like, that's from around here. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't, people told me Chattanooga was near Atlanta and I had to look it up on a map. Um, so go figure, I'm ignorant. Um, but growing up in the Bible Belt, I, I know this was my assumption coming in and it's, it's played out to be true. Most of you are pretty familiar with Jesus or some idea of Jesus or connotations about Jesus, I mean, still a lot of stuff is closed on Sundays in the South. But over the past few years, I've seen a stunning decline in the 15 years that I've been in Chattanooga. I've seen a stunning decline in how much people actually know of the Jesus revealed to us in scriptures and proclaimed through the church over the past 2,000 years. We simply make Jesus in our own image. We interact with messages about him Comments about him, phrases about him, little quips and quotes, you know, gifts or gifs, whatever your side of the argument is there. Um, we, we interact with these things, you know, through BuzzFeed or something. But, but for many of us, he's just some customizable divinity. Some of us want his kingdom without him being king, right? We want, um, we want a culture that values an individual and not just the collective. That's a Christian, a distinctly Christian ethic. That's a distinct, it's not a Western ethic, that's a distinctly Christian ethic. Some of us really want that. Or a sense of justice for all people, which is a distinctly Christian ethic. Or maybe we, want, we think the, we can actually progress toward a positive end and not just live in cycle after cycle after cycle of, of depravity, which is a distinctly Christian vision that things are moving towards a positive end. Maybe we believe in that kind of kingdom, but we don't want Jesus as king. I don't want to follow a king. I want autonomy. I want the fruit from the tree, but not the tree kind of thing. You know, others of us might really want some kind of intimacy with him and some stripped-down version of his kingdom. I want some best friend. I want, I want a God that I can substitute into every single romantic song. But I don't necessarily want to, to believe that there's, there's a, a, a way of life outside of this personal intimacy that I feel that, that I need to enter into and live out. We want different things, I get that. In the midst of it, I think many of us aren't even really sure who he really is and what his kingdom's really about. But we still use Jesus as sort of this, it's a name that covers all manner of things to each his or her own. I want you to find real life in Jesus Christ. I want you to know him and be known by him. He would have you become his friends, his co-laborers in this creation project. He would have you become his students, That's what disciple means. If you've ever heard Christians use the word disciple, it just means student. He would have you become his students and he would teach you to live in a new way in the world. 
Instead, Jesus is, for many of us, the name of just a certain set of inner convictions or feelings that we have about ourselves or others. In our culture, he's just some customizable thing, like I said, rather than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus has become some personal imaginary friend that helps me get through tough seasons rather than the one who is holding the universe together by the word of his power. So this semester, we're going to be obnoxious about looking at Jesus. Each week, we're going to be learning from different one-on-one encounters Jesus had with, his people, with, with people in the scriptures, and my hope is that you respond to him, not just some idea of him propped up in our culture. He is going to surprise you, friends. He's an equal opportunity disruptor. He's going to invite you to ask him for what he is offering, to believe in his promises, to choose what God says about you over the other narratives rolling around in your head. And my hope is that you'd say yes to him. He has come for the whole world and for each and every one of you, and it is his good pleasure to give you his kingdom. So pull out your Bibles in print or otherwise. If you don't have print one, digitally is fine. If you don't have print ones, we've got a ton of them we can just give you. I say this, nobody does it. And I, and I was cool for years. It's not cool anymore. Um, I, I, because people just don't read it, y'all. Like, you have people like, who tell you stuff about Jesus, but you don't know. And I want you to find this stuff in the text. I want you to read along. I want you to think critically about this stuff. And look, every single worldview requires a degree of faith. Jesus actually wants you to come into this with your eyes open. I want you to examine some of this stuff yourselves, all right? We're going to be in the Gospel of John. It's chapter 4. It's the fourth book in the New Testament of the Bible. If you've got digital stuff, you can probably just keyword search or look at a table of contents and find John somewhere in the 66, or if you're Catholic, more books. Um, but John chapter 4, so it's the fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 4. Um, uh, this is a very intentional account of the life of Jesus. That's the, the whole book of John is. And it's intended to demonstrate for whoever's reading it, us, that Jesus is the Christ, which means the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that everybody's been waiting for, and he's the Son of God. John said it's written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and that by believing in his name you would have life. You can actually find that in, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It's not up for debate why John wrote John's book. John tells you why he wrote his book. It's in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. But we're going to be in John chapter 4. I'm sounding a little punchy. Sorry, I really want you to read the Bible. Um, The encounter we're looking at tonight in John chapter 4 takes place around a well. If you can imagine it, some bricks or something and water, and uh, there actually isn't a bucket going down into this well. It's just a big hole in the ground, and it's been there for at least 1,500 years, and people have been drawing water from it. For context, Jesus had been doing some teaching and miracles in Judea. That's just a geography thing. That's not like a big Bible word. That's just knowing where a place is on a map. I didn't know where Atlanta was, so you're fine. Um, uh, in Judea, and, he, and, he, and some of the religious leaders in the region of Judea started to get really concerned about him because they heard that he was this upstart and more people were being discipled by him. John tells us Jesus didn't even make disciples. Sorry, more people were being baptized by Jesus than his cousin, the John the Baptist, and they started to get nervous. Who is this guy that's got a crowd? We didn't care about him until he started to get popular. Now we care. John makes this parenthetical point that Jesus didn't baptize anybody. And most scholars think that if Jesus didn't baptize anybody personally, it's just because he doesn't like favoritism. 
He doesn't want somebody who says, well, I was baptized by Jesus, so it counts more. Anyway, there's a parenthetical point there. But Jesus has been, uh, or his disciples have been baptizing these people, and, and the leaders are getting nervous about him and wondering what's going on, so Jesus decides it's not the time for me to, to, to stay here. I'm going to go home. And so he decides to go home, and on his way home, he's exhausted, and he's thirsty, and he's hungry, and he stops at a well for water. And I want to look at the text because this is one of the first things I want to draw your attention to about Jesus, and it's in verse 5 of chapter 4. I think we've got slides for this, yeah? Um, here we go. Eventually, this is from the New Living Translation. Whatever translation you're using is totally fine. The words might change based on how people have translated it from the Greek, but it'll mean the same thing, I promise. Um, verse 5. Eventually, Jesus, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. Long time ago, Jacob. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. John tells us earlier that Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what it's like to be human because he knows intimately what it means to be human. He knows personally what it means to be human. He knows what it means to suffer, to be hungry, to be lonely to be in pain. Christianity quite distinctly... Oh, I, I skipped a line. That's not going to work. Um, God has not kept himself safe from the trials of this world. And I know that there's an agnostic instinct that's in our culture for sure that assumes that if there is a God, why doesn't she, he, they, it make him, herself, themself, itself known here. Why not? And Christianity quite distinctly preaches the opposite of that instinct, that the God of all creation got his hands in the dirt and became one of us. And so he's tired and he's weary and he's thirsty and he's hungry. If you continue, and surely you've heard, because God's people have not been silent over the past 2,000 years, that he identifies with us even in death which nobody in this room has even gone that far yet. Jesus has beat you to the core of what it looks like to be a human in this fallen world. He has drank from the cup that we all drink from in this life. The great surprise, of course, is much more than that because he offers us his cup as well. But there is your God. I don't know what you picture when you picture God, but this is what John what would have us picture of our God, there is your king slumped down on the, by the side of a well, so fully human that he is exhausted and tired. And it seems as if he literally sent his friends to the store to grab lunch, which is another thing to note. You might have heard that Jesus miraculously feeds thousands. Sure, he does, he did. But he didn't turn stones into bread when he was tempted. And when he's hungry, generally, he has to make lunch like the rest of us. He's human. Let's move forward to verse 7. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at this time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. So Jesus is alone. He's tired. He's thirsty. When a Samaritan woman comes walking up to draw water, and contextually, it, it's a bit curious why she's there alone at noon and around a well 
which has some really weird uh, overlaps in the history with the Israelite people. It, but, but it fits our story really interesting in light of what's going on in the, in the whole book together. If you're a good reader, generally speaking, generally speaking, you don't open a book and read, you know, uh, seven sentences on page 149 and, and, and try to make sense of it without reading the rest of the book. We do that with the Bible a lot. And it confuses us because we just don't, we don't read it like in, as a whole and in context. But if you look at the context and zoom out just for a bit, in John chapter 3, which is just before this, Jesus meets alone at midnight with a man of power and privilege. And here he's meeting with a woman of low social status in the middle of the day alone. In other words, as John is painting this picture for us, Jesus is meeting with people high and low in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, and he's available to and will make time for anyone. Perhaps you think Jesus would never meet with a person like you. Or perhaps you think Jesus would never meet with a person like somebody else, fill in the blank. The scriptures would say otherwise. And when he meets with this Samaritan woman, he asks her for something. This is their first encounter. She walks up and he says, please, could you give me a drink? He asks her for a drink. Consider for a moment. I don't know if you've ever considered this before. It's sort of it's so basic, we skip it. But consider how powerful a question is. A question immediately creates intimacy. And it immediately creates a new power dynamic. Instantly. Think of what happens if, if, you, if you're walking by me and I say, excuse me, could you help me? How for just a moment, we have to stop and attend to each other. Immediately, it ushers us into this moment. You are now considering me in a way that you weren't just seconds before. And some of my life, whichever way I need help, is hanging in the balance of your response. So all of a sudden, by asking if you could help me, I actually give you a kind of power. It's pretty wild, isn't it? Interestingly, you know, I, 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 I'm a pastor of the house. The house is a weird organization. It's also a, it's a nonprofit organization. That's, as high as it goes is this volunteer board of directors, and I work as the executive director at their request, so they could fire me and they hire a new one and that kind of thing. Um, all of our funding comes from individual donations. It comes from, like, people's generous gifts. That's where it all comes from. If our staff is charging you to hang out, let me know. All of our funding comes from gifts, okay? Um, and uh, the, it's interesting. I, I talk a lot about generous giving because of my role as an executive director of a nonprofit. And when I talk to people about generous giving, I hear, for as much as people want to talk about young people or, or certain categories of people being entitled, I hear an enormous amount of people that want to be rich and, and, be, and be generous. Interestingly, most of them are not generous with their current amount of money. But when they get rich, they'll be generous. I guess that's the thing. I don't know. Um, but I hear that. I hardly ever hear somebody say, I'll, I'll be dependent upon other people for a living. And I think nobody wants to be in that position because of the power dynamic. Because when you are in a place where you need somebody else to help you, it puts you in a vulnerable position. And so most of us want to be in a powerful position where I don't need anybody else, but a lot of people need me. And I could just be generous. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm not trying to call anybody in this room out about that at all. I'm trying to illustrate how powerful it is to be somebody who asks for help. 
It's not powerful compared to the person that's being asked is the point. Jesus puts himself in this vulnerable position immediately with this woman at this well. This is how powerful questions are. They are the core of any good communication. If you, a huge trick for why if you struggle to keep friends close, maybe because you don't ask them questions. If you're struggling to be interesting, maybe you can get a first date, but it's really hard to land a second. I submit to you, be more curious. Asking questions are our core to any healthy relationship, and actually not just amongst each other. The very core of prayer is request. The very core of the way God would have us interact with him in prayer is to make requests to him. It ushers in intimacy and it creates a power dynamic of vulnerability really fast when you ask a question. Questions fundamentally establish relationships. I wrote down that asking creates communion. That's how powerful questions are. And this is what Jesus is doing at the well. He is establishing a relationship with this woman by placing himself in her care even before he invites her to place herself within his. He always goes first. He makes himself and his condition vulnerable to her by asking a question. Maybe you just hear him say, please, could you give me a drink? It's really easy to think about that if you don't think about Jesus being divine. It's really hard to think about why he would do that if he is, if you're trying to hold all this stuff together. Verse 9, let's move forward. The woman was surprised. Not because she's like, you're Jesus, though. Oh, my gosh. You know, or, or, oh, my God, literally. You know, not, not that. The woman was surprised because Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. There's a, over 500, almost 500 years of ethnic struggle between the Samaritans and the Jews because of some history stuff we can't get into tonight. She said to Jesus, if you read the Bible, you'll learn about it, though. Um, Second Kings. Um, she said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Jesus asks her for a drink, and she doesn't say yes or no. If you track with Jesus' conversations, it's constantly this way. You'll see this as we over and over and over again this semester look at interactions with Jesus. Conversations are constantly full of this tension where people don't want to give in to the other's categories and the other's framing of questions. Jesus says, can you give me a, can you, please, can you give me a drink? And she doesn't say yes or no. And perhaps you can imagine a kind of skeptical resistance when she says, why are you asking me for help? That's basically what happens. Why are you asking me for help? And he responds to her in a surprising way because he doesn't answer her directly either. He says, why are you asking me for help? If only you knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to. If only you knew the gift God has for you, he calls this gift in just a moment living water. He will later refer to the living water as the Holy Spirit. If you only knew that God wants to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, if you only knew that, and if you only knew who was speaking to you, if you only knew that I am the Son of God and I am the one who can give it because it's my Spirit, he's not making promises that he can't follow through with. If you only knew this, you would ask me and I would give it. And friends, I want you to look at the simplicity of Jesus' invitation. 
What does Jesus require of this woman for him to give her the Holy Spirit? For her to become ushered into God's kingdom and to be someone within whom God dwells, what does he require of her? Read the text. Maybe it's still up on the screen. I haven't turned around. But read the text. What does Jesus require of her for him to give her this? Somebody actually say it. Ask. That's it. Not speaking in tongues. Not getting your life right. Not leaving all the baggage at the door. Not making promises to do such and such never again. Not even be really confident and certain about this. Simply ask. Listen to this. There's a quote from uh, one of my favorite um, uh, scholars on uh, the book of John. He says, Notice, Jesus' verb is not beg or entreat or implore, but it's the simplest word available in the Greek language. It's the Greek word for ask. We should not jeopardize the free gift of Jesus' Holy Spirit by giving people onerous conditions, steps, techniques, or spiritual disciplines in order for them to obtain God's gift. How is it a gift if it must be paid for by consecrations and surrenders and yieldings and a hundred other well-meant but ill-used works? Scholars even think that in the Greek, Jesus actually says, and I think most of your translations will say this, that God is giving a free gift. That's um, actually called the tautology. Like each of those words mean essentially the same thing. That he, he's trying to make bold in his speech that what I have to give you is free. It is free. Simply ask. I know, I know our God to be one who does not force things upon us like this. And so he stands at the door and knocks. But he doesn't kick it down. He stands at the door and knocks and says, will you let me in? And he says to this woman, simply ask. If you knew what I have to give and you knew who was talking to you, just ask and I would give it. This was Jesus' invitation to the woman that day and it stands as his invitation to you and me still, friends. It is his good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Simply ask. My suspicion is that for most of us in this room, when we think about New Year's resolutions, we do not think, God, will you give me your kingdom? Will you give me a measure of the Holy Spirit that I have never had before that I might follow you? No. I say I want to lose 10 pounds. Might also be good. That just may not be what Jesus is offering at the well. Well, she does what we all do. She dodges when Jesus makes his offer. She dodges. She misses what God is offering and who is speaking, probably because she can't fathom how good God is being to her in that moment. But Jesus, sticking with the water metaphor, tells her, anyone who drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. With just one sip, he says, you will have a spring bubbling up inside of you. It's not that you won't want to drink anymore. It's that every time you're thirsty, there's something to quench it. You see how she knows what he's talking about by looking at verse 15. We can put that up. Please, sir, the woman said at this point, give me this water. And then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Finally, she asks. 
finally she does it. She asks, right? Jesus said, if you ask, I'll give. And if you look at what Jesus is talking about, the Holy Spirit, living water, it's very clear from what she says that she's not totally certain what he's talking about. But she asks. Her ask is imperfect. It misses the point. She doesn't fully understand what she's asking. It demonstrates at best a weak faith in what Jesus is offering. And yet, all he said was, if you ask, I'll give. And she does, and he does. If you continue reading, Jesus invites her into even more vulnerability until she, um, she begins to see that he is the one sent by God. He starts to, uh, to dig into some of her personal life and sh- as she begins to share things. And it's a, a fascinating—we don't have time to get into it tonight. If you keep reading in John chapter 4, um, it's, it's this fascinating thing Jesus does because he exposes—she actually exposes it. He gives her the opportunity to this tremendous area of shame and vulnerability, and he's kind to her about this. It's really interesting. But as he exposes this area of vulnerability with her, she begins to realize who he is. She begins to call him a prophet and then begins to suspect that he might be the Messiah. And then his disciples come back from lunch, like with food probably to feed him or something. Well, actually, I know that they do. They offer him food. And he's like, no, 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 I'm totally full up now because I have this great moment. And, um, And she tears off back to her hometown, back to the Samaritan village. And she leaves her water jar, which is just a wonderful little note in the text. She leaves her bucket. She found, it seems, something better than what she came for that day. She goes back to her village and she tells everyone, come see Jesus. And if you read it, her evangelizing is a little dramatic. It's full of doubt. But Jesus' promise is true. The living water comes bubbling up. And in a stunning moment, almost the, it's actually the first time this happens in the Gospels, maybe one of the only times, um, the whole town makes its way to see Jesus. Like she's pretty much converted an entire town because of her testimony. And in the end, they don't just believe because of her, they believe because they've met him. Which of course would always be my hope for any of us. That you wouldn't just believe because of somebody else's testimony, but that you would actually encounter Jesus. And you would know him and be known by him. One of my favorite moments from the end of this story in John 4 is that the town, when they meet Jesus and they begin to discover for themselves who he is, they ask him to stay for a couple of days, and you know what he does? What do you think he does? Somebody. He stays. Do you know why? Because they asked. This is very common of Jesus. They asked, so so he'll stay. Once again, ask and it will be given. James, the brother of Jesus, would later say to the people of God, you do not have because you do not ask. Or another passage of scripture that we read tonight from Isaiah 55. You can hear this invitation from God through the prophet Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. If you only knew, friends, the gift that God has for you and the one who offers it to you, you would ask, and it would be given. And so this semester, I want you to know what he offers, and I want you to know who he is so that you would ask and that you would receive. He is Jesus, the hope of the world, fully God, the creator and sustainer of all things, and fully human, identifying with us to the uttermost of our experience in this life. He identifies with the suffering, with the sick, and with the poor, and with the meek. 
and his life and death and even reigning over you and over this whole world even now is for you. And he is offering to you his very spirit. His spirit who comforts and remains with you and offers you wisdom and leads you into all truth. He offers you his very self and his request is only that you would ask. You do not need to do anything else to receive him. There is tons of pomp and circumstance in our culture, in, the ch- in our churches, and uh, all the different tribes of Christianity. There's, and the pomp and circumstance, I think, probably serves all sorts of good reasons in all sorts of different ways. But in order to receive the gift that God wants for you, all you need to do is ask. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to be clean for three weeks. You don't need to feel really, really bad first. You, like the Samaritan woman, can misunderstand him and be full of skepticism and not even know fully what you're asking for. You just need to ask. And he will lead you and complete whatever he begins in you and may no one make you pay or make you feel like you have to pay for what Jesus is offering to you for free. Now, one thing I didn't make much of earlier is this strangeness of the woman showing up at this well alone in the middle of the day. One thing virtually all historians and theologians are certain of is that this woman wanted to be alone. She wanted to go at a time of day when nobody else is going to get water. It's in the heat of the day, in the middle of the day. Everybody else is going in the morning or in the evening. So she wanted to go draw water from this well when no one was around. Maybe it's her fault. Maybe it's through no fault of her own. But she has a really colorful and sordid history with men. And she's currently, in this very moment, it's exposed in the text if you read it, she's currently living with another woman's husband. And so she, surely carrying shame and being a source of gossip in her community, doesn't want to be seen. And yet, yet, that is precisely where Jesus meets her. And his first move on his way to offering her living water is to ask if she would be willing to meet one of his needs. And all this makes me wonder what that might look like in our lives. In other words, metaphorically, where are we trying to draw water from? Where are we going, especially when no one else is looking, to try and get what we think we need? Maybe you want to believe God loves you, but you come and you sit in the back of the room like this because you don't want, you don't want to come forward because you're not sure that God does love you or could love you. And you're not sure what would happen if the community saw you, if, you made, if they knew you more. Maybe you're trying to pull water up from the well of social media. Welcome to the party. But no one sees how much you agonize over what you post and how much it would mean to you to have people respond like you want them to. Maybe it's accruing money. Maybe it's a way you treat your body. Maybe it's in romance or sex or just hoping someone notices you. We've all got these wells, so to speak in our lives, and maybe nobody else knows about these things, but we keep trying to draw up meaning and purpose from them, and maybe we go to them in the middle of the day when nobody else is around, or in the middle of the night when nobody else is around, and my suspicion, friends, is that Jesus is wanting to meet you right there. You might think he wants to meet you on a Sunday morning at church or at a Tuesday night worship service. That's true. He does. You might think he wants to meet you after you die. True. He does. But the whole meat of the gospel is that God moves toward you first. 
and most especially in the places where you are weak and low and broken and sick and hungry and thirsty yourself. And he is hanging out right next to whatever well you're hanging out at and offering you more than you can imagine. So ask him what he's offering. Ask him what he's offering to you right now and may you find like our Samaritan sister that you don't even need your bucket anymore because you found your heart's desire in Jesus and then of course I hope that you run and you tell everyone what you found in him. I'm gonna pray for us and then every single Tuesday this semester I, I wanna do this. This is just a normal part until our, of our Tuesday nights until our culture changes. Um, I'm, I'm utterly convinced that so few of us have any silence in our lives. I think for most of us, we literally wake up and one of the first things we do is we look at our phones. You know, like Apple has this advertisement where it shows like a guy laying down on his pillow and he just opens his eye and the facial recognition gets it, gets it. And, and the reason why that works is because everybody's checking their phone first thing in the morning. And I'm pretty convinced that many of us are falling to sleep to screens on. I know that last year, or, or 2018, I know that 41% of 16-year-olds got up in the middle of the night to check their social media. They woke up from sleep specifically to do that. And, and I'm not convinced that that's totally different amongst this age group. And, and it just makes me think, I'm not like just trying to harp on social media or screens right now. I, I'm, I'm just trying to say, I don't think we have a cumulative two minutes of silence and reflection. I've told this story before because it happened to me again, and this reveals my own fragility and, and temptations. Um, I, I wrote a lot of the sermon tonight in the fourth floor quiet room of the library so nobody can talk to me, which is really rad. Uh, Mario and Kirby exceptions. Um, that was great talking to you. Uh, but otherwise, I want quietness up there. And, uh, and I get in the elevator and it's four floors, two, three floors. I don't know what floor I enter on, but it's short. And I get in the elevator and I got my coffee in one hand and the girl next to me, I don't know her name, if you're in this room, sorry, um, she immediately pulls out her phone. And I'm like, dude, it's just like three floors. But the only reason I was thinking that is because I was about to pull out my phone and I was like, I don't want to look like that though. Uh, it's because I deal with it, you know what I mean? And I'm thinking in an elevator, on a toilet, when you're in your bed, cumulatively, what's the average amount of silence and reflection that many of us have? I asked a bunch of folks for prayer requests over Christmas break. Multiple people said, I want you to pray that I'll be busy because we're afraid to be quiet. It's a long intro to about 60 seconds. But, if you know me, there you go. Uh, anyway, um, but this is what we're gonna do every Tuesday after the sermon before we come to the Lord's table. We're just gonna be silent for 60 seconds, and, and you're welcome to go to pray. There's a prayer team in the back. They'll be up here, a couple people up here during communion to pray with you. There's also folks in the back. You're welcome to go pray with somebody, but I encourage you just for 60 seconds to just think about what God might be doing in your heart and in your mind. You're welcome to pray or just be quiet and think. It might be terrible for some of you. I'm sorry-ish. It's really good for you to get in touch with what the heck's going on inside of your mind and your heart. So let me pray for you and we'll, we'll take 60 seconds and then come to the table. Father, um, thank you for meeting this woman at this well um, and not magnifying her shame but offering her something more than she could imagine. And thank you that you offer that kind of thing to each of us still.
Even at the start of a new year, I'm sure some people's New, resolution, new Year's resolutions are, are hot and, and awesome and they're just clicking. Others have already crashed and burned uh, and, are, and are thinking, I wonder what I'm gonna do for 2021. <laughs> uh, it's not even a weekend. Um, Lord, I'm quite convinced that, that you want to have our desires and our hungers and our thirsts rise to the level of heaven because that's what you wanna give us and you wanna give it to us now. And for each of my friends in this room, I pray that you send your spirit to help them know where it is you want to meet them right now in their lives, where are the places that you want to offer your spirit in ways that they have not even dared to ask for yet because they didn't know you were offering it there and they didn't know that it was you offering it. Draw their attention to your presence in those places and draw their attention to what it is you're offering them and invite them to ask you for it. Be with us now in the next 60 seconds and as we come to your table in Jesus' name.